Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Most people have heard the name Vlad the Impaler, but it's usually in connection with a piece of trivia related to Bram Stoker's Dracula and has almost no context connected to it. So who was Vlad the Impaler? Why was he important beyond providing literary inspiration? How much did he love to impale? Today we'll dig into all of this and more. Let's begin. All right, we're here on HI 101, here with Colin Oliver. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Not too bad. Happy to have you back on the show. Happy to be back. And uh, today we're going to talk about Vlad the Impaler. Yes. Which is, uh, which should be an interesting topic. It should. Yeah. Uh, now, we, we kind of picked this after talking over a couple of different things. And I got the sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I got the sense that we basically picked this one because you went... This sounds cool. I don't know anything about it. Pretty much. How far off am I? No, that's okay. exactly it. Awesome. Um, everything I, now that I know about this topic, I could sum up in a couple of sentences. I I love doing topics like this where it's kind of like, let's just start fresh right from the beginning. Sounds good. Because I think, and, and we talked a little off air, because, uh, but uh, I, I think this is one of those topics where people know the name. They have a couple of very loosely associated ideas that go along with that name and could not put a century or a general geographic area to it if their lives depended on it. Pretty much, yeah. I feel like I could say this name to most people I know and they'd be like, oh yeah, I know that guy. And then... And there's like one main fact. Yeah. That he's the guy that uh, Dracula is based on. He's Dracula, right? He's Dracula. We'll get to that. We'll talk, to that. We'll talk about that at some point, because I do want to talk about the whole idea of sort of fictionalizing real people at right. some point. Are you saying that he was not, in fact, Dracula? As far as I know, he has not been <laughs> verified as a real, actual vampire. Nice hedge. Well, I mean, I can't know everything. The universe is a crazy place. <laughs> I will enough. tell you this much. We don't know for sure where he was buried. So make of that what you will. I'm excited. I wouldn't read too much into it, but I'm just saying, <laughs> if you really want to hang on to that hope, there is a, there's a little bit of a, a glimmer there for you. Cool. So to really talk about Vlad the Impaler, we need to kind of do a little bit of a recap of what's been going on in the area before Vlad is even born. And to be clear, which I think you already looked it up, but the geographical region that we were talking about is... I, I know it's around Romania. It is current day Romania. Yeah. And since Count Dracula famously is from Transylvania, obviously 
no, he's not from Transylvania. No, why would, that would be too easy. Why would we do that? He's from a region which, as we said, is now in Romania, but was known at the time as uh, Valachia. And basically what we're talking about there is smack dab in the middle of the Balkans. Valachia uh, borders the, the Black Sea on its east, the Danube River to the south, and the Carpathian Mountains to the north. So if you're looking for where it is on the map, that might help. Probably also I'll just post a map because it's really hard talking about countries that don't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, definitely like like square in the middle of the Balkans here. Right. Which is a, a really troubled area in general. I mean, if you look at the history of the Balkans, it, it's consistently considered a, a very volatile and conflict-filled area. And I think there's a lot of tendency, especially with the Balkans, to kind of uh, frame it as an area that's just like by its nature somehow more conflicted than others. Which, right, just because it's been so sustained. Yeah, and which which completely isn't fair. I mean, it's it's in a lot of ways a victim of its circumstance, right? I mean, but what that ends up turning into then is is sort of generalities about the the people that live in those areas and things like that, which it's it, you know is it's amazing to me how much capacity people have for making that kind of generalization. But anyways, yeah, we'll, we'll get a little bit more into what it is about the Balkans that kind of set it up for disaster when it comes to international relations. So, is it of strategic importance? Yes and no. It's kind of more that it, it, it exists in this pocket between two very important areas and frequently ends up finding itself as the the actual battlegrounds upon which conflicts take place between those two areas. That's a rough deal. Yeah, it really, really is. And I mean, that that just sets you up for a lot of things. But again, we'll, we'll expand more as we get into it. I got to go back to the Crusades on this one. That's where we're going to start off. Awesome. That's a good segue from our last episode. It is. It really, really is. 1204, the sacking of Constantinople during the Fourth Crusade. A bunch of crusader knights who are on their way to the Holy Land to, you know, liberate it from the Muslims there and whatever else crusaders do, decided to take a hard east turn and head over to Constantinople, lay siege to the city, and they're the first people to overthrow the walls of Constantinople in like thousands of years. You made it sound like they did it on a whim, but I'm guessing it wasn't that simple. Yeah, in some ways it almost was a whim. Like, it's it's not... The, the thing that's always really important to understand about the Crusades is that there's sort of the the idealized version of it where the Pope has declared some sort of, you know, he's, he's made some sort of decree that they want to accomplish X, they want to accomplish Y, and it's a, it's a, a holy crusade of some sort. But the reality of it is that Europe at this point in time is so fractured that people are basically putting together ad hoc armies and going on crusade for a lot of different reasons. Some of them are honestly looking at this as a, a a truly religious experience. They are doing it for pious reasons. And that's, you know, they're wearing their heart on their sleeve throughout this process. Everything that they claim to be, that's exactly what they are. There are other people who are doing it for, uh, you know, military glory, right? Like maybe there's just not enough going on in Europe and they need the chance to, you know, to fight once a year. I'm bored. Let's fight. Yeah, basically. Basically, because you have to remember how important warfare was to social standing in certain class uh, levels in Europe at this point in time. If you didn't prove yourself in battle, 
it raises a lot of questions about your uh, legitimacy, maybe even your masculinity. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of problems with not having won some battles. Uh, and then there are people with even less savory um, motivations uh, along the lines of straight pillaging and looting. You know, they're they're looking to find some treasure in the Holy Land. That's why they're going. That's you know, they'll they'll tell everybody that it's for crusade reasons. I was about to say they still call that a crusade. Absolutely. And and that's the thing. Like there's this there, there's this overarching, you know, Pope says it's for this reason, but the reality of it is that all the people who are involved are in it for like incredibly varied motivations of their own. And it's so unfocused and unstructured that you can't really put a lot of agency on the crusade as a as a single entity overall. You have to remember that there are a lot of different people involved who are doing a lot of different things for a lot of different reasons. Right. And enough of them decided that they wanted to get their hands on that great old Eastern Roman Empire treasure behind the walls of Constantinople that they went and laid siege to the city and actually managed to break the city, to, to break into the walls. They sacked Constantinople, which you know had not been done, as I said, in in well over a thousand years. Constantinople famously has these very strong walls and it's in a really easily defendable position. Uh, it's it's basically up on a on it's up on a cliff on a peninsula. So really the only way that you can get to it is is climbing this one hill up at this one wall, which is really easy to defend. Yeah, good deal. Uh, it's it's basically it's basically you couldn't ask for a better medieval city to defend. It can't be done. So was it just uh, sheer force? Yeah, I mean, at this point in time, siege warfare had had uh, increased in sophistication to a point that they were able to overcome the uh, the defenses that were there. It's also a matter of the people that were actually defending it. First of all, not taking this, the threat terribly seriously. And second of all, not being able to respond to the level of threat that the Crusaders brought against them. It was a, a, a whole thing. I don't want to spend too much time on on the, the nitty-gritty of the, the siege. The fact is that it happened, and when it happened, the Byzantine Empire, which is what we call the Eastern Roman Empire because you know it's easier to, to separate it from when the Western Roman Empire fell, but is a continuation of the Roman Empire that we think of you know, begun by Caesar and all of that. That empire lost its capital of Constantinople in 1204, and didn't get it back until 1261, which was a nightmare in terms of its ability to rule over the territory that it previously held. Mm-hmm. Now, they did eventually get it back in 1261. But during that entire time, there's also this people called the Turks who have come down out of the Ural Mountains. So in, in kind of west, Western uh, Russia and have been fighting in Anatolia. So like the, the Asian part of, of what's now Turkey throughout the 12th century. I mean, you know, it, it started out as a group called the uh, the Rum Sultanate, which uh, Rum was the uh, was the Turkish word for Rome. And basically they were, you know, it's a, it's a group that were fighting in the area that used to be Rome because that, that used to be Roman territory. You know, eventually the, the Rum Sultanate kind of 
fizzled out, but one of the groups that had been part of it was led by a guy named Osman I, and Osman was the founder of the Ottoman Empire. I was about to ask, is this where the Ottoman Empire is coming in? Yeah, yeah. And and so it, it kind of comes to prominence. Well, I mean, technically, the, the Ottoman Empire begins in 1299, but really the groups that kind of feed into the Ottoman Empire are growing throughout the 13th century, constantly in conflict with what used to be Byzantine Empire. All of this land that they used to own in Anatolia has completely fallen to the Ottoman Empire. They just don't have that land anymore, and it's reduced them significantly from what they used to be. Then, in you know, after a whole bunch of maneuvering, after a whole bunch of fighting, all of this stuff going on in 1453, so 150 years later, the city of Constantinople once again falls, but this time to the Ottomans. Their leader at the time was Mehmed II. I actually did an entire podcast uh, with my brother just on the fall of Constantinople in 1453. So if you want a little more backstory on that, you can always check out that episode where we get a little bit deeper into that story. But the point is that, you know, the Roman Empire didn't fall in like the 5th century, which is what we usually talk about. It fell in the 15th century when the Ottomans finally defeated the, the Byzantines and took over uh, Constantinople. It took them a couple of years to kind of mop up the, the last remnants and kind of down in Greece. Uh, but that was really the end of the, the Eastern Roman Empire. This is a big problem because we, we've had a long time where Europe has been Christian and outside Europe has been not Christian. And those two lines don't really, it's it's very oil and water, right? Like you've got a hard delineation between the two. And right. yeah, there are major problems down in Spain where uh, the Moors have crossed the Strait of Gibraltar and are in the Iberian Peninsula, but they're working on pushing them back out. We're again, talking in the mid 1400s. So they're only about, four, uh, about 40 years out from completely pushing the Moors out of Spain. So like, Everyone's kind of feeling like they were so close to getting back to a properly Christian Christendom. Right. And then... And then the Ottomans come busting in. And it's kind of like, okay, well, once they're past the the Byzantine Empire, which traditionally was the vanguard against these non-Christian peoples, you know, well, now, like, where, where do they, where do they stop? Like, what's protecting you know, Europe proper, because they didn't really think of the Byzantines as proper Europe. They were, they were half heathen. So <laughs> the, the first time that uh, Constantinople was sacked, why wasn't that the end of the empire? Why was it able to maintain itself outside of that? Might be a little off topic. But. Well, there was quite a bit of other territory that was still held by the Byzantines. There was also still continuity of uh, political leadership. Okay. So yes, they lost their capital and through that, a lot of their ability to administrate, but they weren't completely gone. They still held armies. They still had an unbroken line of emperors. They weren't gone, but I mean, that that was really like as big or nearly as big a blow as their defeat finally by the Ottomans. The only reason they weren't completely wiped out at that point in time was that it was Europeans attacking them and they really only wanted the treasure inside of Constantinople not the end of the Byzantine Empire. Right. They weren't looking to take over the joint. They just wanted some uh, sweet, sweet money or something. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there there was a bit of a religious component to it where, you know, Constantinople was the seat of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And these crusaders that are coming are obviously Roman Catholic. And, you know, you get into a whole bunch of messy stuff there, too. But 
again, this isn't really what we're looking to address today. It's kind of interesting asides. But yeah, with the fall of the Byzantine Empire, it's kind of like, well, those were the guys that protected us. Europe feels really exposed all of a sudden. And they kind of tried to work a little bit with the Ottomans, try and figure out, hey, new neighbors, uh, <laughs> how's it going down there? You're being a little loud uh, between the hours like, of midnight. Yeah, you know that Silk Road that's making you a lot of money? <laughs> Can't run that anymore. We're not okay with you guys running it anymore. Yeah. And that's how 40 years later we get European explorers trying to cross the Atlantic to find China. Um <laughs> It's interesting how these things have very clear motivations sometimes when you look at it from a slightly different start and end point. Right. But anyways, the first major power that stands between the Ottomans and the rest of Europe, the the first major power is uh, Hungary. Hungary at this point in time is a much bigger uh, parcel of land than it is now. The king of Hungary had quite a bit of power. It was a force to be reckoned with in Eastern Europe. But this funny thing had happened uh, about 100 years before, in the 1330s. In in the year 1330, actually, there was a a Turk named Basarab I who basically went, "Uh, you know what, Uh, Hungary, I'm sick of your nonsense. I don't want to pay you any more taxes. So he basically went to the Turks and said, hey, I don't want to deal with their nonsense anymore. Uh, you guys are kind of beating the bush around uh, the, the Byzantine Empire, which still exists at this point in time. Tell you what, I'm right on the borders of the Byzantine Empire. You guys can come through this area as long as you help me declare some independence from Hungary. And they went, okay, that seems to make some sense to us. And the kingdom of Wallachia was formed. And it's this weird little pocket that ends up being right between the kingdom of Hungary and eventually, once the, the Byzantines fall, the Ottoman Empire. It's just this, this you know, it stretches all the way to the Black Sea on one side. And it is a, a pocket on the south side of the mountains that is protecting Hungary. And it's, it's right in the middle of everything. And they're kind of allied with the Ottomans. The funny thing about Wallachia is that, and I keep, I keep saying it Wallachia, it's Wallachia. Spelled with the W, right? It's the W. Yeah. There's going to be some bad pronunciations in this episode. <laughs> I'm going to try my best. They're not going to go well. I'm telling <laughs> you now. From the beginning, Wallachia's main concern is independence for Wallachia. The people there are incredibly hard-headed. They're incredibly stubborn. And they take a lot of pride in ruling themselves rather than being ruled. So from the beginning, they're uh, disputing the territory of Transylvania with Hungary. So Hungary, who's the big kid on the block, who they've just split off from, owns Transylvania. And Transylvania is basically a a stretch of land just above the Carpathian Mountains. So basically, Wallachia wants a piece like north of the mountains as well as just south, because they want a little bit of that extra mountain protection would be nice, but they're constantly skirmishing with Hungary. They're refusing to pay taxes to Hungary, even though they're technically, ethnically, mostly Hungarian. Although, because now they're on the borders and working with the Turks, there's some Turkish blood mixing in there. Uh, There's a lot of, like, they very much end up being like a crossroads between what on a macro scale would look like Europeans and Asians, right? Right. Which is how most people would view 
the the distinction between the Hungarians and the Turks. Really, the Hungarians as well as the Wallachians are more Slavic than they are, you know, the the Western European uh, family, ethnically speaking. But at this point in time, religion is almost more important than actual like ethnic roots. Right. Um, people only really start dividing along those ethnic lines when they're fighting internally. But when there's a force that they see as external to that, uh, for example, the Ottomans, that stuff kind of gets set aside. It's not, <laughs> it's not as important. Funny how that works. Yeah. But this independence streak that Valachia has means that they're constantly doing things like going to the the Turks and asking for help versus the Hungarians, but then turning around and going to the Hungarians and saying, listen, the Turks are really asking a lot for us because of this deal we made way back when, who even remembers why can you give us a hand? Like we'll give you, you know, whatever in exchange for the use of some mercenary troops in order to defend our, to defend our borders from the Turks and the Hungarians hate the Turks. So they go, yeah, okay, sure. But like, it would be really nice if maybe you started paying us tribute because you know, you are technically part of our kingdom. And then they go back to the Turks and go, you know, the Hungarians are being real mean about this whole tribute thing. And they just keep playing the two powers off of each other, which is a really dangerous game. Yeah, it could blow up in your face pretty quick. It, it's, it should. By any rights, that should be over in a couple decades tops. Because at some point, one of these powers should get angry and just wipe them out. They should just roll in there and wipe them off the map. And there's no longer a problem. And that's the funny thing about the Balkans in general, too, when you look at it from like a little bit larger perspective, is that the Balkans, you know, they call it a, a powder keg is the usual description for the Balkans, right? Or certainly was at the beginning of the 20th century when they're looking at it as the most likely candidate for the seeds of, of war, and they were absolutely right. Um, it's it's this area that's, that's kind of constantly in uh, a push-pull relationship between bigger powers, and they don't really have a lot of power themselves. But the people there are not really willing to just kind of sign up to one of the big guys. They're going to go it alone, no matter what that costs. And so they're going to the Ottomans and they're saying, hey, we're on your border, you know, give us a hand. They're going to the Hungarians saying, hey, we're on your border, give us a hand. They're going to the Russians going like, hey, we're both Slavic, give us a hand. And constantly like asking for help when they need it. They're never too proud to ask for help when they need it. But they refuse to take up any terms that would involve a loss of their own. It's always identity. a very uh, temporary alliance. Yes. Yeah, it is. Or, or at least it's a very limited and opportunistic one. Right. It has to be on their terms or they're not going to take it and they're going to go to somebody else. And they're very upfront about this, which is probably the whole reason it works. Everyone that's dealing with, at this point, the Valachians knows that they'll go to the other player if they don't give them what they want. And so to some extent, helping the Valachians get whatever they want is good for you because it keeps the other player from gaining influence in Valachia. Right. <laughs> it's a messy, messy setup. Very messy. This whole idea of keeping Europe, I hate using this word, but but pure, basically. <laughs> right? To, to keep to keep to keep Europe completely Christian is a very important thing to a lot of people in Europe at this point in time. We look now at the differences between specifically, well, usually specifically Arab culture and European culture and the amount that they don't seem to get along. We can't seem to make them 
compatible these days. Yeah, it's nothing compared to what it used to be. I mean, now it's a matter of, you know, some people are are able to sort of expand their worldview to a point where it works just fine and others are a little bit less tolerant. Um, at that point in time, they might as well have been from a completely different planet and were threatening in a completely different way than you could really make any sort of real argument for today. So one of the things that came out of this was an order that was modeled after the crusade or the uh, the crusader knights orders in 1408 it was called the order of the dragon and awesome right <laughs> the whole purpose of the order of the dragon it was founded by the king of uh hungary by the way king sigismund the whole point of it was to guard against anything not christian which was code for the ottomans basically to keep islam out of europe and so it was it was a knightly order you would have been knighted by the king of hungary and its entire purpose was uh was defense of christianity the the uh the emblem for it there's no original examples surviving but a lot of people have like made recreations of it but it's it's a dragon in a circle and its tail is wrapped around its own neck Kind of like an Ouroboros, but the dragon is like choking itself. Um, Why? Uh, the idea is that like, fr- from what I gathered, it was a matter of like a-, a cautionary tale to its members. Like the only thing powerful enough to kill this dragon was the dragon itself. And therefore it was the dragon's responsibility not to do so. That's what I took away from it anyways. I'm sure it's full of interpretation. And I, I mean, I, I haven't looked into it that closely. I buy that. That's That seems accurate enough. Otherwise, yeah. it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are many other reasons for it. I, I probably, I, I'm probably not even all that close with that one. Uh, anyway, that's what I remember reading for what it's worth. The Order of the Dragon included a lot of higher up uh, nobles and, uh, and rulers including at the at this point in time the the ruler of Wallachia who was uh, Vlad II and he was actually given the cognomen Dracula based on this the Dracul is the uh Hungarian word for dragon now i've seen this in a bunch of different forms so we're just going to go with Dracula because that's the easiest one for me to pronounce and it's the most Familiar one. So plus Vlad, we get to say Dracula a whole bunch. Vlad Dracula was <laughs> was Vlad the Second. Okay, and he was Prince of uh, Valachia. And um, sorry, it's just funny to say Dracula. Dracula yeah. is like a last name for somebody. Yeah, and I mean it was more like a title. Yeah, than it was a, a name necessarily. But yeah, it, it, that's essentially what it was. And and uh, yeah, anyways, he, he was included in this order. He fought against the Ottomans and he did so with a, a religious fervor, which is kind of uh, kind of interesting stuff. But that's where the name Dracula actually comes from. It means dragon. In fact, it's morphed in meaning uh, in Romanian that it no longer means dragon. It actually means uh, evil or devil. And there's a there's a different word that they use for dragon altogether, but uh, there's some people that are going to give it some help along that path. <laughs> it's got strong cultural meaning these days, right? But Vlad was no different than any other previous leader of Valachia in that he was more than willing to do whatever it took to 
remain independent. How do you be a member of an order that's so anti-Ottoman and still maintain that independence? Oh, that's a great question. That's a really good question. And here's the answer. With as little trust on either side as anyone can muster. It was a very tenuous relationship because he still needed the Ottomans. In fact, he was technically uh, obligated to pay tribute to the Ottomans on a yearly basis through a system called uh, suzerainty, which is similar to vassalage. I don't know if you know anything about like vassal states, the idea that they remain in a lot of ways uh, politically independent, but that they- I'm familiar because owe... of this show. Yeah, okay. They, they, they owe um, uh, usually military support at any given time or that the, uh, that the parent state is able to step in on certain matters. So while they're technically not a part of that country, they're definitely being ruled by proxy right. by that country. Um, and it's just a matter of degrees. Suzerainty to the Ottoman Empire wasn't really that much different. So technically, he owed the Ottoman Empire quite a bit, politically speaking, for in, in exchange for Valachian independence. Why but was they, the order, like the order must have known of that. Course, but they also knew that he was a devout Christian and that he didn't want the spread of Islam any further into, into Europe. And what's more, he's the front line. Right. Because he's, bet- well, he's right between them. He is right between them. Yeah. There is Ottoman Empire. And then north of that is Valachia. And then north of that is Transylvania. And there's also... Uh, there's also a country called Moldavia, which is still kind of under uh, Hungarian uh, rule, which is also on the Black Sea. Uh, and then Hungary. Hungary is right there. So they have a lot vested in keeping Vlad and, by extension, Valachia happy. So, yeah, they know that he's kind of in league with the, uh, the Ottomans, but they also need him. And he's willing to play both sides. It's not a matter of them expecting him to stop dealing with the Ottomans. It's a matter of realizing that if they don't also play play ball with him, then the Ottomans will be the only ones helping him. Right. So they have to. They also did strongly believe in Vlad's um, commitment to his religion. So that that was very important to them as well. It wasn't any secret that he was part of this order. And he had been in a lot of conflicts with the Ottoman Empire over the years. But without getting into too much detail, he had actually been basically deposed from the throne nonviolently by some of his boyars. Boyars being like, it's, it's a Russian word for like uh, landed nobles. So like it'd be the equivalent of like counts and also dukes and also, you know, uh, uh, landlords and things like that. Right, boyars yeah. were, it, it, it's, it's a little bit different, but we'll stick with the word boyar because it's, it's a little more accurate. Uh, when I say boyar, just think noble. It's kind of easiest. He'd actually been deposed at some point. And he wanted the crown back. And the Ottoman said, okay, but how do we know we can trust you? And so Vlad said, fine. I'm going to send two of my sons to Constantinople uh, as ransom. Whoa. You help me get my throne back. From, by the way, a, a ruler who was vehemently anti Ottoman. He said, I'm going to be better for, for the relationship between Valachia and the Ottoman Empire than that guy will be. 
you help me get back on the throne. And if I try to pull any nonsense, you've got not one, but two of my sons. Go ahead and kill my kids. Basically, that's how much he he was like, that's how much you can trust me. I'm going to leave my kids with you. That's wacky. So he sent one of his sons, Vlad, and also his son, Radu, who would be who would later be known as like Radu the Handsome (laughs) to Constantinople as Ransom. Right. Wow. Radu the Handsome, Vlad the Impaler. Indeed. So he still has an older son with him. He has he has actually has several other sons. So he's like, ah, if something goes wrong, I'll still be okay. <laughs> I have plenty of sons. Some of whom were even legitimate. So, you know, <laughs> we're 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 gold. And 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 the, the Ottomans uh follow through on their promise. They get Vlad uh the second, Vlad Dracula, back on the throne of Valachia. And I think we're gonna take a quick break right there. And when we come back, we're going to duck in on the two kids in Constantinople, see how they're doing. And yeah. Hey, everyone. It's been a while since I checked in, so I just thought I'd say hi and bring a couple things to your attention. Uh, First of all, I noticed recently that most of the show notes haven't actually been publishing properly. So those should be up within the next couple of days for about the past three topics or so. Really sorry about that. Uh, I'll get those posted up as soon as possible. Second of all, I've noticed there's been a lot of new listeners lately, which is really exciting for me. I just wanted to say uh, welcome to everybody that's found the show recently. I'm really excited to have you guys here. Uh, Which brings me to my third point which is that I don't really know a ton about you guys. I don't get a ton of feedback from my listeners about what they like, what they don't like, um, really anything about them. So there's a couple of ways that you can go about getting in contact with me. There's always email contact at hi101.ca, or you can go to the website itself, hi101.ca, and leave comments on individual episodes or show notes. Let me know what you liked, what you didn't like, what you disagree with, what you want to know more about. Uh, Whatever your impressions are, I'd really love to hear about it. There's also a Facebook group, facebook.com slash hi101podcast. I'm also on Twitter at hi101podcast. Um, lots of options there. Finally, um, and please don't feel obligated to do this, but one really easy way for me to learn a little bit more about my audience a little bit more anonymously is I've set up a a survey. Doesn't take long to fill out five minutes max, lets me know a little bit more about who exactly it is that's downloading these because while I get numbers of downloads, I have no idea who you guys are. So It's just a few quick questions, nothing too intrusive. If you don't feel like answering them, don't bother answering them. You can skip them. And at the end, there's a section for leaving comments. Uh, It's just a one-time thing. Uh, I would really appreciate if you guys would check it out, maybe fill it out for me, and uh, let me know a little bit more about you. So you can get to that at bit.ly slash hi101survey, hi101. And yeah, if you could let me know a little bit more about you, maybe I can do a little bit more to make sure that the show is what you guys are looking for. So that's everything for right now. Hope you're enjoying the episode and I will talk to you soon. Thanks. Okay, we're back on HI101 here with Colin Oliver. Hello. And we've been talking about, well, not not Vlad the Impaler much so far. He's, uh, He's around. Just showed up. Yeah. Just showed up. But we have been talking a lot about 
14th century Balkan politics, which <laughs> I know is what drives everyone to this show. Right? Absolutely. This is, this is, why else would they show up here? <laughs> yeah. Vlad and his brother, Radu, spend a number of years in Constantinople. And when you're like a regular prisoner in Constantinople, they just throw you in like a stone room where you waste away. And it really sucks. When you are the son of the Prince of Wallachia, it's not so bad. I guess they're they're almost more like guests? Question mark? Yeah. I was about to ask, but I know the answer already. You have not read A Game of Thrones. No, I have not. Okay. There's a they they have a very similar concept in these books where there's a couple of characters who are uh, um, adopted as uh, as terms of peace treaties and things like that. Right. But that's okay. I don't really need to turn to that for examples. It's pretty self-explanatory. What ends up happening is that while they're there, Vlad and Radu end up learning a lot about Ottoman culture. Yeah, I would think they would, living in it. Because, well, I mean, part of it was that they uh, their captors are giving them a decent education because Vlad's 13 at this point in time. So, you know, he's got to be in school. So they're teaching him things like the martial arts, so how to ride, how to shoot, how to command, because he'll be a commander at some point, not just a foot soldier, right? They're also teaching him the Quran because... You know, if they can convert them while they're at it, hey, bonus. <laughs> uh, they're teaching him how to speak uh, Turkish. They're teaching him. like So he's, he's learning a lot about this culture. There's an interesting thing that starts happening here, though, which is that Vlad definitely sees this as a temporary position and one that he definitely resents. He learns as much as he can with utility in mind. He understands that knowing these things about the Ottomans would be useful. Radu, on the other hand, becomes enraptured with the culture. He finds it very intriguing. He there, There's a lot of things about Ottoman culture that really resonate with him. And, you know, this is one of those things that you could argue about endlessly. Was he uh, legitimately interested in it? Is this some sort of you know, can we can we diagnose Stockholm syndrome 600 years ago? Right. Eh, you know, it ends up being futile, but it's interesting to consider. I mean, how, you know, how much of it was his choice? But, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're just talking about likelihoods and possibilities. The point is, he was really kind of digging on the place. Absolutely loved it. A few years later, <laughs> you're, you're going to get this impression very soon, but the... Holding the holding the throne of Valachia isn't exactly the most stable job. <laughs> About five years later, Vlad II was overthrown by some of his boyars, and uh, the throne was taken over by someone uh, called Vladislav II. Not related, he was one of the boyars, much more pro-Ottoman even than Vlad II was. So there's a lot of changeover, and a lot of it has to do with which side of the equation do you support more? Because Valachia is always going to be somewhere between Hungary and the Ottoman Empire. It's just a matter of degrees, right? Right. And he was overthrown by some boyars who did not agree with his stance. He does not choose his boyars. Hmm? 
very well. Boyar's the 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 title of Boyar is is hereditary. It's oh, not okay. something that he can choose, unfortunately, or or else this would be the sort of position where heads would roll a lot more often than right. the prince's head would roll. <laughs> I, I I get the impression that uh, Vlad Dracula would have no problem getting rid of troublesome boyars if it was something that was in any way politically feasible. But again, the 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 other point of this is that it's not as though uprisings by uh, nobles is a particularly unusual thing right. anywhere. Basically, lords are always plotting to throw uh, to overthrow the people above them for any number of reasons. It's just that uh, a hallmark of how stable a society is tends to be how often that happens. And in Valachia, it happens a lot. Sometimes that's a matter of, you know, external pressures, such as the tension between Hungary and the Ottoman Empire. Sometimes it's something a little bit more internal in terms of the, the actual structure of the, polit- of the political system. Uh, often it's a mixture of both, and, and there's always an X factor in terms of who is leading these rebellions and why. But a quantity this high definitely speaks to a very unstable political system and, and potentially a very unstable society as well, because it wasn't really seen as that odd for them either, which is maybe even more telling. It's not, it's, yeah, it's not great to be in a position where overthrows are that normalized. No. I feel like I wouldn't want to rule that particular uh, area. Vlad was killed. This is Vlad Dracula. His oldest son, Mercia, was not killed immediately. Instead, he was blinded and buried alive. That's cold. Yeah. They were looking to send a message. To who? Vlad's other sons. Mm. So... Vlad the Third. Don't come back. Be Vlad the Impaler to uh, Radu. And there's also another Vlad. They're super original with their names. Uh, Vlad the <laughs> Monk is what they ended up calling him. Vlad the Monk. But yeah, don't come back. Why Vlad the Monk? Because he was a monk. That'll do it. Mm-hmm. There it is. <laughs> That's legit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and because Vlad the Impaler was already taken, so what are you going to do? Vlad the Impaler initially went by Vlad Dracula as well. He took his father's uh, title after his death. And basically the first thing that he does was go to Moravia, where his cousin, Stephen III of Moravia, was the, the ruler, and basically started plotting pretty much immediately. Now he's, he's you know, 18-ish at this point in time. This is a that's a that's a reasonable age for someone to start plotting an overthrow. Of course, in the yeah. 15th century, when I was 18, man, man, I did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it makes you wonder, like how how these people manage to do such world changing things at such young ages. Sometimes, yeah, you know, you think about Alexander the Great, who died three years older than I am now managed to take over most of the known worlds long before he died. Crazy. Like how did, how did he pull that off? Like all these <laughs> all these people that are like running battles at 17. I, I I get that they have help. I get that they have commanders. I get, you know, I understand the concepts here, but like 
it's not as though that's entirely external from them. They had to run these things with some degree of competence. They still had to be extremely impressive, charismatic yeah. people. It's bizarre. Yeah. And I guess it's a different thing when you're raised knowing that you're going to be ruling in some capacity because then your education is going to be geared towards that. That's true. I didn't really have any, you know, commanding classes. Yeah, my my strategics and logistics training by the time I was 18, woefully lacking. <laughs> yeah. It just wasn't there. So I suppose that's one major aspect of it, but still it's 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 remarkable stuff to hear some of the things that these people accomplish at such young ages. Uh, yeah, bizarre. Anyways, there had actually been two factions that were looking to overthrow Vlad II. There was Vladislav II, and then there was a Hungarian-backed Dan III. I guess it's Dan. It's spelled D-A-N. Dan? I know. Really? Maybe it's like Don or something. Maybe you say it with a Hungarian accent. Yeah, I guess. I, I mean, it's just such a... Anglo-Saxon feeling name. It's like Fred the Fourth suddenly decided to. Oh hell, King Bill! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it is very strange. I it's it's Dan. I I don't know. Like I said, maybe it's pronounced differently, but that's what I got. But uh, Dan the Third didn't really end up going anywhere, and in all this turmoil, even though he he, he continued plotting against Vladislav as well, and within all this turmoil. Vlad III manages to slip in to this whole mess and challenges Vladislav II to single combat a for duel. the throne, a duel, and kills him. All right. So how long, uh, how long did Vladislav actually keep this throne? Oh, he was there for quite a while. Uh, huh. He was there for nine years. That's pretty good. He did okay. Yeah. Yeah. No match for Dan, though. <laughs> Guy was a hack. Couldn't um. cut it in Valachia. Come on, man. <laughs> Try Lithuania or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I don't either. Um, that meant nothing. That meant nothing at all. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. Oh, edit, I might edit. hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> A couple years after Vlad III, Vlad the Impaler, takes the throne, Pope Pius II calls for a new crusade. This is about six years after Constantinople has fallen to the Ottomans, right? So I think I actually misspoke earlier when I said that Vlad III was uh, held by the Ottomans in Constantinople. Uh, not, not at first. Not at first. He would have been moved to Constantinople afterwards, but he was first held beginning in 1442. So this was before they had, this was uh, 11 years before they had Constantinople. So no, they, he wouldn't have been held in Constantinople. Still held, by the, uh, still held by the Ottomans, but that whole overthrow that we talked about in the first part happened while all of this internal stuff is going on in Wallachia. And that's, in a lot of ways, the reason that Vlad ends up being important in any way. Because otherwise it ends up just being one in a long line of sort of regional warlords that's squabbling over a chunk of land that most people don't pay attention to for most of the, well, most of the time at all. Hey, it's hard for a guy named Vlad to stand out around there. I can understand. <laughs> He's one in a crowd, absolutely. But in 1459, so three years after our Vlad takes the throne, 
Pius II calls for a new crusade against the Ottomans to try and take back Constantinople. This is six years after Constantinople has fallen to the Ottomans, and it's very much seen as both a political problem for Europe, as it is you know, the final seat of the Roman Empire, but also as a religious issue because, you know, yeah, we were okay with laying siege to it back when they were the wrong kind of Christian, but now that they're not Christian at all, well, we want to re-Christianize that. Right. Of course. Ah, crusade politics gets so silly. Mm. Anyways. <laughs> Pius gives out a whole bunch of money to, to try and fund this uh, crusade because everybody's kind of tapped out at this point in time. Like, they don't really want to keep going. Like, the Ottomans are on a roll. Mehmed II is, like, a crazy good leader. Like, he's intelligent. He's cunning. He's militarily skilled he's 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 a really interesting guy and like very very competent in a lot of ways he's a force to be reckoned with you you don't want to be against Mehmed II and no one really wants to fight him but at the same time he's also looking to collect on all of these suzerainties that he's got set up in the area and so he's going to Vlad saying like hey can you uh pay us the tribute that you're supposed to be paying us now, there's a couple of problems with that. Number one, if Vlad goes ahead and pays taxes to the new big dog in the area, he's basically selling Valachia for all time because if he does it once, if he doesn't, it's like, it's like, it's like showing up at prison. If he doesn't punch him in the face right away, <laughs> he's never going to establish a reputation for himself, right? right? He's got to do something to show that Valachia isn't just a province of the Ottoman Empire. But he also doesn't have the money for it. <laughs> They're broke. They've been through a lot of stuff recently. Yeah. Uh, and Valachia has never been traditionally a wealthy country because they're constantly hiring mercenaries to help fight off one power or the other or paying off one power or the other. Uh, they don't have a lot in liquid, you know? It's all tied up in, you know, different ventures. Right. Yes. <laughs> Investing in their in their future. It's just, it's not liquid funds. They're, they're wealthy, but not cash wealthy. Right. They deal in favors, <laughs> sort of. Boy, do they. So Vlad goes to Hungary, and there's a, there's a new ruler there at this point in time named Matthias Corvinus, which is a Latin name. I'm not sure exactly what the Hungarian is. Hungary is a weird country language-wise. They speak something called Magyar there, which isn't actually part of any of the other language families in Europe. So it doesn't even really translate that well to a lot of stuff. I remember like I, I learned like a tiny little bit of that while I was there. Yeah, it's it's an interesting language, but it sounds very, very different. It really does. There's the, there's yeah, you can absolutely tell just kind of it, through intuition that it it's not linguistically related to most of the other stuff. It's not Slavic. It's not romantic. It's not Germanic. It is its own thing. So, I mean, I have this name. It is a Latin name. That is not what he went by, but that's the one that I've got. He was having a lot of problems uh, with the Holy Roman Empire at this point in time, but we're not going to worry about that too much. Let's just leave it at the fact that he was kind of dealing with some of his own political issues. The Pope gave Matthias Corvinus a bunch of money to use for this, uh, this crusade because he was basically bribing him to keep fighting the Ottomans and to try and drive the Ottomans out of the European side of what is now Turkey, at least, right? They wanted them out of the Balkans, out of what is now Greece, 
at least keep them on the Asia side of the strait. Hmm. Vlad hears about this and he goes, hey, I know what you could do with that money. You could pay me to take on the Ottomans for you. I'll do it. I'll do it for the money. And Corvinus goes, all right. Yeah, we could we could see what happens here. It's a little bit reluctant because, you know, Wallachia has never been a strong supporter. But then again, you can usually depend on what you're paying them to do. So it goes, fine. Yeah, maybe we can work something out. Are they like known as a significant military power that could actually do something like take on the Ottomans? They're well known for being able to leverage enough military power to do what they need to do. They have a force, yes. There is a Volachian army. There are also close familial ties with Moldavia. There are also ties with some of the royalty in Transylvania. Uh, the Hungarians themselves have traditionally been allies when needed, but have also been enemies. But usually when they're enemies, then the Turks have been allies. And there are also a lot of people who just do mercenary work, who will fight for whoever pays them. And uh, the Volachians have never had a problem hiring mercenaries to round things out. So clearly no love lost between Vlad and his old captor buddies. Not particularly. Now, notably, Radu has stayed. Right. Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of interesting. But um, at this point, Vlad finally getting the go-ahead from Corvinus basically tells the Ottomans to stick it. And they send some envoys, and they basically go, listen, you know, I feel like we're getting off on the wrong foot. Uh, just, if you just pay the tribute, you know, we're not going to come encroaching on your lands. We're not looking to make this out to be anything more nefarious than it is we're not looking to infringe on your independence any of that they've Um, been doing this for a while we have an arrangement yeah the arrangement is that you pay us tribute and we leave you alone when you need our help we help you for a fee of course but we're happy to do this and we're happy to leave this arrangement as it is just because the byzantine empire is gone doesn't mean that anything has to change here and vlad says to them I find it really disrespectful that you won't take your hat off for me. That you won't take your hat off for me? Correct. He's a prince. Why are they not removing their hat in his presence, which would be a sign of respect? Now, Vlad knows that these Ottoman messengers, envoys, are Muslim. That they're wearing turbans. And that as part of their religious rules, this is garb that they need to wear when in public. And they said, we're not taking our hat off for you. I'm sorry. This is, you know, part of our convictions. And Vlad says, I have a law that says you have to take your hat off in my presence. And they say, no, we can't do that. And Vlad says, okay, if you like your hat so much, we'll make sure that you never take them off again. He calls guards in and he has them beat metal spikes into their heads through their turbans killing them okay i'm i'm getting a sense now for the for the moniker why would he do this colin i'm not i'm not entirely certain why he would do this this doesn't seem strategically good i'll tell you why or i'll tell you some reasons i think why obviously i wasn't there i'm not inside the mind of vlad the impaler probably for the uh, best 
here's the deal. There is a very, very, very old convention in diplomacy, which states a, a really, really simple rule. Don't shoot which, the messenger? Yeah. Diplomacy doesn't function unless the person bringing the message has some guarantee of safety, of safe passage. You can't kill someone just for bringing you a message. It's not their message. And if you start killing messengers, people will start killing your messengers. No one can get messages through. And there's essentially no alternative to discourse between two powers except for war. Not killing envoys is an incredibly important thing, diplomatically speaking. It's underappreciated in terms of how important it is. However, if a messenger were to, say, break the law, then those diplomatic privileges do not extend to protect them, to give them immunity from breaking other laws. Right. Well, and he wasn't killing them because of the message. Correct. He was killing them because they were breaking his law. Correct. Now, that law conveniently made it illegal for them to wear clothing that they were religiously obligated to wear and that they would not violate for religious reasons, which he knew and understood. Having lived among them for as long as he had, he had to know it. So Vlad the Impaler put a law in the books that said, you have to take your hat off in the presence of, in my presence, on penalty of death. By doing that, he was able to execute the messengers without any fear of diplomatic reprisal from the Ottomans because they didn't explicitly violate the diplomatic protection of the messengers. The messengers, as individuals, violated his laws and were punished accordingly. He also, in the same move, sent a very strong message to the Ottomans, which is this. Number one, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Number two, I'm not paying you your tribute. Stop asking me because this is just going to happen again. Number three, I understand you. Whoa, that's terrifying. Yeah, that's pretty freaky. That's that's chills. Yeah. Wow. Strong move. Very strong move. Okay, so power play. Why after so many years of fence sitting rulers Mm -hmm. would... Vlad finally really uh, come out strongly on one side. There's a number of reasons. Number one, the balance of power has recently changed. The Byzantine Empire is gone and no longer sits as a buffer between Wallachia and the Turks, even to some extent. It's not that the Turks didn't butt up against them before, but it was very inconvenient for them to do so because Constantinople was still breaking up the territory in Anatolia and in the Balkans. So they still had some measure of protection from the Byzantine Empire, which made them slightly safer. Mehmed II was on a roll after he took Constantinople. While we're talking here, while these envoys are coming to collect uh, this tribute, he is currently basically mopping up the last of the Byzantine Empire down in uh, Greece, or has very recently finished up. I would have to check when it's, you know, the 1450s, I might be off by a year or two here and there. It happens. It's not the most important thing. The point is, Mehmed was, he he already had a, a measure of momentum when it came to conquering. And the thing about people going to war and the thing about people taking land is that 
it's very rare for somebody to just kind of stop and be like, okay, that's enough. You know, I think I'm good here. Right. Yeah, you want to ride that momentum, especially if you just keep winning. I can think of one example of someone who wasn't simply checked by outside political or military forces. And that is um, Caesar Augustus, who legislated uh, natural outside boundaries of the Roman Empire. That's the only person I can think of. Hmm. I'm sure there are plenty of other examples, but off the top of my head, that's the only person I can think of that just kind of stopped when they could have kept going. So, yeah, it's a rare thing. He's worried. He's worried that the Ottomans are coming for him next. And he's worried that they're trying to sneak their way into it through this whole tribute, backdoor, suzerainty system. So he's trying to send them a message that, no, Wallachia isn't Ottoman territory. And if you try to make it Ottoman territory, you're going to have a really difficult time doing so. The other point I would make is that this isn't the the first time that Wallachia has been at war with the Ottomans. It's happened plenty of times before. Technically, yeah, they owe them a yearly tribute, but that hadn't stopped Vlad II, Vlad Dracula, from attacking them under his responsibilities as a member of the Order of the Dragon. Right. There have been tons of campaigns against the, the Ottoman Empire. So it's not as outlandish as it maybe seems. It was begun in a really dramatic manner, but it's it's still part of the Wallachian nature almost to, to be in conflict with the Ottoman Empire sometimes and the Kingdom of Hungary and other times. It's just how they be. Fair enough. The Ottomans send another force of about a thousand cal- cavalry under under the command of a guy named Hamza, uh, Hamza Bey. Bey is a, a title, kind of like general. And they sent this force under pretext of diplomacy to be like, whoa, can we work everything out here? I'm a Bey, we can talk about this. I have a little more authority to negotiate this stuff. Can we can we figure something out? Vlad looks at this and goes, yeah, that's, that's a trap. They're going to pretend to come in here, be all nice, and they're going to attack me. While they were on their way, to the capital, Volachian forces ambush all 1,000 of these cavalrymen and they impale every single one of them on wooden spikes along the road into the capital. Hmm. The reputation grows. Corvinus kind of goes, hey, maybe you should cool your jets a little. (laughs) I know we're pals and all, but maybe you really need to settle down a little bit. This is getting a little intense. Vlad's going, what? I need them to get the message that they can't push us around. Corvinus is like, yeah, but you don't want to like pull them like into attacking you next. They may not have even really been considering you as a next step. They may have been considering you as an ally, somebody that they can get around to a lot later that they don't really have to worry about. Vlad goes, yeah, that's why I need to take care of them now while they're off balance. Corvinus goes, just for me, just tone it down like half a notch. <laughs> You're up here. Uh, I'm going to need you down here. <laughs> so Vlad kind of goes, eh, okay, fine, whatever. But he decides that maybe the problem is that he's been too overt about this whole thing. Because now there's definitely like 
Ottoman patrols in the territory outside Wallachia. You know, south of the, the Danube, there's definitely an increased Ottoman presence. I can't imagine why. It's almost like they're worried or something. And it goes a couple of years without Vlad really doing anything that major about it. But in 1462, so after about three years, Vlad gets fed up and he pulls a bunch of guys together and he starts going on these trips where he himself will costume himself as a Turk. So he'll put on Turkish garb. He speaks fluent Turkish because of his time there. He understands the language perfectly. He understands the way they set up their camps. He understands, like he, he knows them. He knows them. And this is what he told them from the beginning. I know you. And they start slipping into Turkish camps south of the Danube, often at night. He'll go in, pretend to be a Turk, talk, do reconnaissance by like walking around the camp as though he's supposed to be there, checks everything out, goes back, gets his men and slaughters everyone. He spends the winter doing this, the whole winter. I don't understand. Why are the Ottomans putting up with this? They're not realizing the entire... See, here's the thing. For you to get a reputation, people need to be able to talk about it. Right. He didn't leave anybody. He wasn't leaving a single person. In February of 1463, he sent a letter to Corvinus. And I've, I've, I, I pulled the quote because it really stands well on its own. He says... I have killed peasants, men and women, old and young, who lived at Oblutstia and Noveselo, where the Danube flows into the sea, so at the Black Sea. We killed 23,884 Turks, without counting those whom we burned in homes or the Turks whose heads were cut by our soldiers. Thus, your highness, you must know that I have broken the peace. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that is chilling. I have broken the peace. You don't say. I think, I can't imagine what Mehmed II must think of this guy at this point in time. Because Mehmed II was, as I said, like a, a really strong, like a really strong military leader, as well as a, a very smart man who by all accounts, might as well be, you know, on the same level as an Alexander or as a Caesar or, you know, a Napoleon. Like he was, he was this sort of philosopher king who, who was, was skilled in everything that he ever touched. And he had just defeated the Roman Empire. And to have that, and then so soon after, have this guy on your doorstep? I can't imagine what that must have felt like for him. Yeah, must have been flying high and then just like sank. Yeah, I, I, because because I mean, everything that you hear about Vlad the Impaler in terms of like reputation is is often easy to kind of write off as being a little bit sensational. Like maybe this guy wasn't as bad as people are making him out to be or like nobody could be that sadistic or, you know, how could you know, it's it's. It's easy to discount because it's so much larger than life, but like, yeah, no, he, he wasn't lying about those numbers. He wasn't 
exaggerating. Those were the people he killed. And that wasn't, again, that number, 23,000, wasn't even counting people he had burned alive in their homes or people his soldiers had beheaded. So who knows what the real number was? And he always did it by sneaking in. This wasn't warfare in a, in a, I guess, it, like, it was warfare, but it's... No, but you saying that it's not warfare... It's not warfare in the, tra- in the traditional sense that I think of it, especially for that era. Well, I mean, uh, until until the 20th century, warfare was a matter of gentlemen deciding on a place beforehand and lining up their men. No, this wasn't warfare, at least as most people would understand it. It was brutal and and almost savage compared to what they would be expecting. I think this is a really good place to stop. (laughs) I think this is a really good place to take a break. And when we come back, we'll get a little bit more into, number one, the ramifications of what Vlad has just done. And number two, I mean, his career is really just getting off the ground. So (laughs) I can't wait to see where he goes from here. Definitely. Let's, uh, yeah, let's quit there and uh, we'll we'll be back soon. Through circumstance alone, Vlad III of Wallachia found himself standing between the Ottoman Empire and the rest of Europe. While by most metrics the state and the man should have been considered minor at best, Vlad insisted on becoming a central player in one of the biggest political changes the Balkan area had seen in centuries. When we return, Vlad's breaking of the peace is going to very quickly escalate, testing Wallachia's ability to stand in the role he chose for it. That episode will be up on December 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.